please stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, today's reading is from Psalm 96. Psalm 96, which you can find on page 499 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 96, beginning in verse 1. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Calvary. Good morning. Uh, and it's a delight to be with you all here. Thank you to Zach for offering this morning scripture reading. And thank you to the worship team for leading us in praise thus far. It's, uh, it's an awesome blessing to worship in this congregation. I, you know, I'm usually up here, and it, it truly is special to be down there. Um, just, you know, amongst you guys. I'm always amongst you, but to not have to lead and, and to be led is awesome. And we trust that God will surely bless Zach's family and their ministry. Um, and we come now to my sermon, but before we begin, I just want to acknowledge something to you all, and, and that is how strange it is for me to stand at this pulpit. And uh, let me explain. If you, if you don't know who I am, hello, hello again. Uh, my name is Greg Molina, and I have the privilege of serving here as the pastor for worship. And I also happen to have the privilege of growing up at Calvary from around age six or seven through high school. And then even uh, into my early 20s, I served on the worship team and in the youth group and, and all that good stuff. Um, and in light of that, becoming the worship pastor isn't that strange. I mean, it's, it's humbling and it's awesome, but it was something I, I kind of wanted. Uh, I had been leading worship for years. The current worship pastor, Caleb Widmer, was a friend and a mentor. And I love Jesus and I love this church, so it kind of makes sense. Yeah, maybe one day I can do that. Or if I'm very honest with you, maybe I even daydreamed a little bit about doing that. Um, but I can assure you that no matter what, God has graciously you know, granted that dream. But... 
I never thought I would be preaching here. And I can assure you that nobody at Calvary thought that I would ever preach here either. (laughs) Um, I was a bit of a rascal, I will admit. Uh, Take that for what you will. But I did love Jesus, I promise, just a little rough around the edges. Uh, But the Lord works in mysterious ways. And so this morning I am uh, joyful and humbled by this invitation to preach. But that said, I am preaching. I am a worship leader. And so I actually, I was going to say I can't promise, but I do promise you that I will sing in this sermon. And when that happens, uh, I invite you to ask like it's a normal Sunday and maybe consider joining me in song. I think we'll have a good time together. Um, but with that said, let's, let's go to the word. Uh, we come to Psalm 96, and I recommend you open your Bibles again if you've closed them. It's on page 499 of most standard ESV editions and in our pew Bibles, because uh, we were going to reread the entirety of this text as I go this morning. I'll give you a second to find it again. Psalm 96, and it's on page 499 in the Pew Bibles. Let me pray first. Lord, this morning we have sung of your gospel, and we've prayed considering your gospel. Father, we ordained and commissioned a brother in Christ for the ministry of your gospel. And now, Lord, as we sit under your word... Holy Spirit, I pray you enable me to preach your gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to all who have ears to hear. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I have a simple idea for you all this morning, and that is that Psalm 96 is a royal proclamation. Yes, Psalm 96 is a royal proclamation, uh, and Within that royal proclamation, we will discover a call to worship and an invitation to paradise. And to the note takers out there, those are my three points this morning. We have a call to worship, sorry, a royal proclamation within which we will find a call to worship and we will receive an invitation to paradise. And we begin with this royal proclamation. And it's important that we grasp the nature of royal proclamations in and of themselves, as well as the biblical context of this one. For the Psalms were written that we might praise God generously with them, generally with them, but they were also written in their immediate context. And they carry the spiritual guidance of the psalmist to those who found themselves in the various states of life trudging through hard times or scaling the highest joys and and peaks of life, and every occasion in between. They were written to help Israel navigate this life. They were liturgies, if you will, or worship guides, and Christ used them as such. His ministry was often guided by the Psalms. He quoted the Psalms second most only to Isaiah throughout his ministry. And so, friends, if we're to understand these and to preach them and to apply them properly, we have to understand their context. And so I'll say one more time that this psalm is a royal proclamation. Think, if you will, of a White House address or the State of the Union address for all you Americans. And if you're not an American, just think of any time that the powers that be, the authorities of where you're from, have an announcement to make. The most recent global and and universal example of this happened when our nations, cities, and townships issued various shelter-in-place orders some two and a half years ago. In fact, the shelter-in-place order is a perfect analog to this royal proclamation. See, the governments and the authorities were proclaiming that the world had changed, namely that a global pandemic had begun. But not only were they proclaiming this change, they also stated what our role in light of that change was. And these shelter-in-place orders told us that our role was to prevent cases by staying inside. 
And friends, this is the exact nature of Psalm 96. Not the message of Psalm 96, but the nature. And it's also the nature of the gospel. But these aren't shelter-in-place orders, no. These proclamations are filled with joy and call us to gather and to celebrate. And now for the biblical context. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, even remotely, you'll no doubt remember a king named David. And among the most important deeds that King David did was marching the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. This act established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. In theological or biblical terms, what was happening here was God was allowing King David to establish his reign in Israel. And from there, God would rule and oversee the whole world. As Americans, thousands of years removed from this moment, uh, we often struggle to understand this. After all, we're the descendants of a people who waged a war against a king, against a throne. And all of us, whether American citizens or not, are aware of the deeply individualistic culture that shapes us. And so even if we aren't descended from Americans, we, we understand what it is to reject a throne. We, we just typically don't like kings that much. But this was not so for ancient Israel. Suffice it to say, for Israel, this was a huge deal. It was, it was everything. For this moment was the new peak in their redemptive history. The establishing of Jerusalem as Zion, Yahweh's holy city, and God's dwelling place amongst his people. In this very moment, it is that moment that David instructed, instructed the choirs to sing this psalm. And if you want to read the whole story, including this psalm in its original context, you can do so in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 when you get home. But again, I say, this is a huge moment in the story of the Bible. And in trying to think of a cultural analog, you know, one of our songs to compare to one of this songs to help you grasp it, uh, it was quite difficult. Because we don't, like I said, we don't like kings that much. And we aren't a very politically or nationally united people. In fact, the day that something like this, that a president getting elected, for example, unites the people of America, will be the day that Jesus Christ comes back to this world. And that will not be an election. No, he will come to rule unilaterally in a good way. But the difficulty of this comparison aside, I thought of one that I think will kind of hook your brains. It's a fun one. And spoiler alert, it's the one I'm inviting you to sing. We can compare this moment to any moment in our society when the following words are sung. We are the champions, my friends, dun, dun, and we'll keep on fighting, yeah, till the end. All right, there you go. Now, to you, like, biblical scholars, don't get upset. I'm not claiming that Queen is saying the same thing that King David is saying, <laughs> because we are the champions is ultimately about our glory, right? We are the champions. We keep on fighting. But this song is about God's glory and how God had fought for Israel. But we are the champions and our culture is sung whenever there is reason to celebrate. And that is what's happening in Israel in this moment. That is the context of this psalm. For it's this famous song which King David danced before the Lord to in pure joy when cymbals rang, when all the trappings of a great feast and a great parade were brought forth, offerings were given, and food and drink was distributed amongst all the people of God. Yes, this was a royal proclamation, a proclamation that the world had forever changed, that the Lord God was reigning in Jerusalem. And now Psalm 96 will tell us how to respond. It will call us to worship, if you will. And so with our context laid plain, we move to verses 1 through 3. We'll read along again. O oh, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works amongst all the peoples. 
Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, most of us, most of you will, will take these words at face value, but there are some amongst us who call them, who truly are Christians, and, but also skeptics who don't necessarily understand why we make such a fuss about singing in church. And in these verses are one of the many verses in our Bible which tell us why we sing. It's not merely because we enjoy music. No, we sing because according to the word of God, singing is one of the primary means by which the Lord's reign and the good news of salvation is enjoyed amongst the body of Christ and as well as one of the main ways it is proclaimed to all the earth. Verse 2 says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. The whole earth has been called here to sing, and specifically describe singing as telling of salvation. Yes, corporate singing is evangelistic. The psalm is calling the whole world to this all day, every day. And this word to tell or proclaim of God's salvation is the equivalent Hebrew word to the Greek word used in sharing the gospel. It's an instruction not just to teach or to preach or explain. It's a call to run out amongst all the world, going from city to city, proclaiming the good news. The Lord reigns for Israel, or for us, that Jesus reigns. And friends, under this royal proclamation, each one of us has been tasked with singing, blessing the Lord's name, and proclaiming this salvation. And I pray in response to that, that all God's people might say, amen. And yes, yes and amen. And I'm glad you agree. That was a bit of a weak amen. But I can tell in your eyes and in your hearts that you all agree. And uh, in fact, you're so convinced that I think in a few moments, you know, when my sermon's done, the benediction has been offered, you're all going to march right out onto Lake Street and start singing and praising and telling the people of Oak Park of the salvation of God. But I warn you, before you go out there, people are going to ask you why. People are going to ask you, what? what's the big deal about this? Why are you doing this? Uh, whenever that happens to be, in song or word. But don't panic. We don't need to think of an answer on our, on our own, for the psalmist gives us a remarkable answer. We come to verses 4 through 6. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, I want us to take a break from, from listening to me, and I want you just to look at these three verses in your Bibles. Look over them and, and look for any, anything that stands out to you. Just take a moment. Now, <clears throat> as you look, I ask, what stands out to you? Did anything in the text grab your heart or your mind and, and prompt you towards telling of God's salvation and doing it every day? All day long. What in the text could be could prompt us to do such a thing? Let's review together. I'll look at it with you. First, uh, there's God's greatness, which is awesome, right? But there's also a mention of fearing him. And greatness sounds good, but you might not necessarily know what to do about fearing God. And verse 5 says that he made the heavens. And that's cool. But those who ask you might say, hey, man, this is earth. Like, who cares about heaven? And moving to verse 6, we read, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And I don't want to assume you don't know, but there's a high chance that you aren't necessarily familiar with language like this. But this, my friends, is why we spent all that time establishing our context in Israel. Establishing that this royal proclamation, a royal proclamation which granted glorious praise and called for a king to dance before his people, is like singing, we are the champions. It's because Israel had a long history just like each and every one of us. They were a bruised and broken people. Like some of the people in this very room, their ancestors were slaves. 
Like some of the people in this very room, they had wandered in what felt like a wilderness, for them a literal wilderness, with nowhere to call their home for many years. Like some of us, they had been taken advantage of, they had been neglected, they had been abandoned and abused. They had suffered and lost much. And like everyone in this room, they were sinners in need of salvation. And in this moment, this royal proclamation was their ancestral and their personal and their climactic shout of praise. See, God had not abandoned them. He had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and carried them up the very mountaintops they dreamed of. Even when they turned back and rebelled and complained, he still carried them. He still loved them. He still brought them. And in this moment where King David is leading the ark into Jerusalem, the Lord is essentially saying to them, in spite of all that you have done wrong, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And that is what this royal decree meant to the people of Israel. And so they would have known and felt the love and mercy of their God in these moments. To plainly show you this love and mercy in these very verses, allow me to paraphrase verses 4 to 6 to show the heart of the psalmist's words. And turn your attention back to the text, if you would, and read along as I read this paraphrase. Starting in verse 4. For the Lord who saved us is great and greatly to be praised. He is the only one in this world worthy of praise. The other things that we used to worship could ultimately do nothing for us. But the Lord has power. He made the heavens. All that is good and lovely are with him. Perfect safety and true beauty are in his presence. Friends, the psalmist is deeply aware of Yahweh's love for his people. And he reminds his readers that the one who, that whom they are called to sing of and tell the world about is not a harsh taskmaster demanding praise to, to stroke his own ego or something like that, but a personal God who revealed himself to them as Yahweh and brought them out of slavery. And he did the same for us, friends, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus brought you and I out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. And in calling us to worship him he de and declare his greatness, he's not merely commissioning us as some choir, but he's welcoming us into his loving arms, into the presence of his sanctuary. And he offers us all his strength, all that is beautiful. Friends, how else could the psalmist have known what was before the Lord? How else could he have seen what was in God's sanctuary unless God had brought him there? For the Lord God was in Israel, dwelling with his people. And what a beautiful answer that God offers us. Surely this is reason enough to sing of his salvation and tell all the peoples of the earth. But there's one more point I'd like us to draw out, one more nuance. If we look to verse 5, we'll see a comment on the idols of this world. It reads, For the gods of all the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Church, again, God isn't a petty bully slamming his rivals just to be like, ha ha, got you. The truth is that God has no rival. And this verse is here for our sake, not for God's sake. It's a pleading and it's a, a begging us to look and see that the poisons of this world, idolatry and, and vanity and bowing before the altar of culture, finding our value in social media or our sexuality or our partners and all these things, all our ultimate search for acceptance will lead us nowhere. That we can't put our hope in politicians and the powers that be because only God can save us. He made the heavens and he upholds the universe with his power. He fearfully and wonderfully made each one of us, and he desires to bring us in to his sanctuary. And I hope in response to this, all God's people would again say, amen.
Yes. Yes, church, verses 1 through 6 of this royal proclamation are a call to worship, a call for us to sing of his salvation. More could be said on this, but our time is short, and we press on. And we're going to address verses 7 to 9 briefly here, because by and large, they address the exact same topic, giving glory to God for his salvation. But we're going to draw out one caveat. We'll read those still. 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Note this. Bring forth an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Here, the threefold call from before to sing, sing, sing is replaced or augmented with the threefold call to ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And we're called to do so for the same reasons. It references God's glory. It references God's strength. But now, instead of singing, we are additionally called to bring an offering. An offering, and we think, or a sacrifice. And when reading about Old Testament sacrifices, we often, you know, we typically go to the bloody sacrifices, to the offering of a lamb, of a goat, of a bull, a ram, etc. And these offerings were meant to cover sins. But remember... We've already been saved in this passage. The Lord God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. So here we read not of a a blood offering, but an offering of thanksgiving. In Hebrew, the word is, and I struggle to say this, I'll admit, but I think it's mincha, and it's employed specifically to denote a bloodless offering, a voluntary offering. And this is hinting at what the Apostle Paul would later tell us with regards to Jesus in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Yes, and we can add this directive to the call to worship of our royal proclamation. We've covered that the Lord reigns. We've covered that we should sing to him for that reason. We covered his strength and his love for us. And we, therefore, tell the world of his salvation. And now we are are to give our lives as a living testimony of the thanksgiving we feel for this salvation. And all God's people said, amen. And before we move on, uh, I have to address one thing. The astute listener will have noticed that I've skipped two words in the text thus far. I haven't mentioned fear, and I haven't mentioned trembling. And these could in themselves, right, be sermons all their own. But we're out of time, like I said. But I will answer any, uh, two questions regarding this. First, a question an unbeliever might ask. And to them, I would simply say that, friend, though you may not believe it yet, I pray that you come to believe in this holy and perfect God. And I pray that you come to realize, as we who are Christians have, that we have sinned and fallen short of his glorious and perfect will. And therefore, to stand in front of our maker, having fallen short, is truly a terrifying notion. The prophet Isaiah tells us of this in Isaiah 6, 6, where he falls before the Lord in fear and says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And now I admit this is a deep topic, and I don't want to gloss over your concerns. So if you have questions, by all means, come forward after service, and we can chat about this. And now I have a brief answer for you who are believers, who perhaps have felt this Isaiah 6 fear before, this this woe is me, but you've come to Christ. And Pastor Gerald has said that you are secure in Christ. So what do you do with the fear of the Lord? And to you, I will offer you this most beautiful word from Charles Spurgeon. Commenting on this very psalm, he wrote, the men of the world ridicule believers for trembling under the power of the Holy Spirit. But had they been able to discern the majesty of the eternal, they would have too. 
there is a sacred trembling, this is the key part, which is quite consistent with joy. The heart may even quiver with an awful excess of delight. The sight of Jesus in his beauty caused no alarm to the Apostle John in Revelation, and yet it made him fall at Christ's feet as if dead. Oh, to behold him and worship him with prostrate awe and sacred fear. Yes, Christians, I hope you can rejoice in this word. There is a sacred fear for us that is perfectly consistent with our joy. And so, my brothers and sisters who are in Christ again, I invite you forward at the conclusion of this morning's service. But now we we move on and we come to this psalm's most glorious conclusion, uh, this beautiful invitation to paradise. So read with me verses 10 through 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And nearing the end of this royal proclamation, we receive one final directive. We are one last time in light of all that God has done directed to tell the peoples of the earth the Lord reigns and he is coming. And predicting the inevitable why that we might ask him, the psalmist offers us again a most beautiful answer. But this answer is different than our call to worship. Yes, it's that invitation to paradise. You ask, why declare that the Lord reigns? And he answers, because where the Lord reigns, the earth is established. Where the Lord reigns, the world can never be moved. The people will be judged with equity, righteousness, and faithfulness. Friends, where the Lord reigns, we have received an invitation to paradise. If you don't see it yet, I'll expound. Where the Lord reigns, there is perfect stability. Unlike anything you and I have ever experienced, there's no fear of climate change, no fear of political unrest, no fear of social collapse, for the world is established and it shall never be moved. For where the Lord reigns, there is equity, equity beyond what any republic or democracy or human system we can erect could offer. For when the Lord reigns and speaks of equity, he speaks of true and perfect equality for all. He judges the peoples, that is, he rules over the people with equality. Where the Lord reigns, there is faithfulness, friends. Every promise is fulfilled every time without exception. No one is neglected. No expectations are unmet. No power can lie or corrupt or deceive or mislead us. For the Lord our God is faithful. And finally, where the Lord reigns, there is righteousness. Every scale, every measurement, every assessment is accurate. Every ruling determined is perfect. There are no wrongful or unjust convictions, and there are no wrongful or unjust exonerations. No, the oppressed are vindicated and the disinherited restored perfectly. Forgive me, but I'm going to have to quote Charles Spurgeon again. And writing in 1800s, he said, No nation shall be favored here, and none made to suffer through prejudice. The black man shall be tried by the same law as the white. The native shall have justice executed for him against his exterminator. The crushed and hunted shall have space to appeal against all those who slaughter them. And the captive shall be free from the treacherous wretch who kidnapped him from his home. There shall be true judgment given without fear or favor. And in all this, let the nations be glad and the universe rejoice. Yes, this, my friends, is surely an invitation to paradise. 
An invitation so great that not even the rejoicing of Israel could satisfy it. An invitation so great that were you all to burst into song with every Christian on this globe right now, the praise would not be enough. And therefore, as Spurgeon writes, the universe must join us in rejoicing. The sky itself and every bird therein sings. The earth rejoices in every animal that resides on it. The seas shout and every bit of life in our oceans praises the Lord. And finally, climactically, every tree and every forest lifts a never-ending melody of praise. Friends, Psalm 96, the whole of the Bible, I would say, and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. It is a royal proclamation which not only calls us to worship and adore him, but to invite others and to be invited to paradise. It's the proclamation that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The proclamation that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And the proclamation continues when the apostles in the early church received the Holy Spirit, enabling them to live a new life because they professed Christ is Lord. And it continues still for all of us. For that same indwelling spirit enables and compels us to live rightly and to compel the world to come join us. Join Christ's mission to restore this broken world. And I pray again that all God's people might say, Amen. Church, if you've found yourself asking why lately, or what's the point, is this invitation we have worth sharing? Is this proclamation worth declaring? If you've been struggling to share the gospel with the loss in your life, my prayer is that you simply needed to be reminded of this part of the gospel. I know I certainly did. When I told Gerald like about a month ago that I was preaching on Psalm 96, this was not the sermon that I had in mind, but it's the sermon I believe God knew that my heart needed. And friends, there are rumblings of doubt in every one of our hearts from time to time, questions about the merits of the gospel. The world, the news, the stories we hear, the stories we share, the sins that we see and the sins that we participate in, in ourselves make us wonder, is this hope real? But friends, here in Psalm 96, Jesus in the Gospels, the apostles in their letters, the voice of us here in Calvary this morning, and the voices of all the church, Catholic, the blood of the martyrs, and I pray the very voice of Jesus this morning would assure you that yes, it is worth it, for Jesus is the hope of the world. And he proclaimed before all the world on the cross, where he died for you and me, that he reigns. And he calls us to declare and participate in that reign. He directs us to live a life like Pastor Gerald has been preaching out for the past you know, few weeks, a life to see one another with the eyes of Christ, allowing us to see ourselves with the eyes of Christ, to live lives where, enabled by the love and kindness and strength of Jesus, we don't need to defend for ourselves or, or self-protect or live, look out for number one. We can live a new life. But friends, don't make the mistake of thinking that my message of hope and joy and paradise is a message of ease, relaxation, and frivolity. No, this way is long and the road is hard. Gospel proclamation is hard work. And as surely as God's word promises us paradise, it promises us pain. And the rumblings of doubt that we feel now will one day turn to blows. For some, perhaps, even blows of death. But in Christ, we can endure. For in this life, though we encounter many trials, Christ instructs us, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And the Apostle Paul reminds us, and I'll borrow from our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self wastes away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so Calvary, friends, I invite you to paradise. I invite you to join in this pain that Christ suffered for us. But that pain in the end will be but fleeting, and paradise will be eternal. And we can't do it our own. We can't do it perfectly in this life, but God has issued the royal proclamation that he reigns. The earth is established, and it shall never be shaken. So whether in song or sermon, whether in caring or feeding, in mission or even suffering, may we live into our call to worship and proclaim boldly this invitation to paradise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind each and every one of us of the hope that we have in you and the hope that we have in you alone, God. Turn our gaze from the things of this world to you, Lord, that we might be filled with the love and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be sent back to the world to give them this gospel perspective, Lord, to proclaim salvation to them and the eternal hope that we have in your arms. And we pray this in Christ's strong name. Amen.